Hello and welcome back to First Pages Readings, where books are celebrated as cultural messengers. And thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome to First Pages Readings, Episode 53. Today I'll be reading from three books of nonfiction. So let's get started. Today's first book is Billie Holiday, The Musician and the Myth by John Swed. This fascinating book isn't a traditional biography. Instead, it goes into depth about the myth created around Holiday's life and persona, and delves into her knowledge of music, the development of her songs, and growth as a singer. Holiday's music is in the forefront of the book, including her profound impact on jazz and blues. In summary, the book speaks to her evolution as an artist, how her music mirrored the culture and politics of her time, and as the title indicates, explores the myths around her as well as her life's work as a musician. In chapter 5, the author writes, She had a point of view in her songs, a way of positioning herself that went beyond merely getting the words and music right. The first page of Billie Holiday. The book one, Lady Sings the Blues. When Billie Holiday's Lady Sings the Blues was published in 1956, it received a surprising amount of attention for a jazz singer's autobiography. It was written in a direct and often streetwise style, and its apparent openness and honesty was shocking to many. The book was widely reviewed, but often condemned for just those qualities. By 1956, jazz had moved from being the popular music of 1940s America to a more rarefied place in the public's view. It was on its way to becoming a minority music in every sense of the word. Its stars could still occasionally be found in the news, but it was now being guarded by a new breed of critics who were promoting jazz as America's only true art form. Most of the writers were closet-high modernists, who wanted no mention of drugs, whorehouses, or lynching brought into discussions of the music. To them, the content and even the style of Holiday's book seemed misguided, and they saw the financial motivation for it as a personal affront. It was more than they wanted to know about Billie Holiday. Ralph Gleason, in the San Francisco Chronicle, questioned the pseudo-frankness laced with profanity that made it sensationalized reading and the blind resentment that made it compelling. The Saturday Review's Whitney Balliot questioned the high decibels in which the reader is given only a superficial picture of the author and virtually nothing about her art. Harvey Brait in the New York Times regretted that the tragic sense she so powerfully demonstrated in her songs was lacking in her book. Her integrity and sincerity were not enough to move a sensitive reader. The hard surface of her manner prevents Miss Holiday from pausing in her narrative to discuss, say, a song, a delivery, an aesthetic response, a disinterested observation. Orrin Keep News, in Record Changer, criticized the book as a betrayal of the whole cause of jazz and of those who fought the constant negative battle to keep jazz from being so completely publicly misunderstood. When Holiday wrote, I guess that I'm not the only one who heard their first good jazz in a whorehouse. She was speaking the truth, but it was a cliché that a generation of jazz writers had attempted to forget. Linda Cool's unpublished judgment of the book was the harshest. She was writing for money to support a drug habit, 
and for publicity to make it appear that she was off the habit and to get her back her cabaret card. The cabaret card was a license required of all performers who worked in show places that served alcohol, and one for which they were fingerprinted and photographed when they applied for it. Holiday had lost hers in 1947 after conviction on drug charges and had not appeared in a New York City nightclub for the previous eight years. Nat Hintoff was one of the few willing to accept the book as a cautionary tale and observed in Downbeat magazine that it would help those who want to understand how her voice became what it was, the most hurt and hurting singer in jazz. Today's next book is Beautiful Country by Chan Julie Wang. This memoir examines the early life of Chan, who was born in China and moved to the United States at age seven. Speaking no English and hungry most of the time, the author explores her young, undocumented life in New York City with honesty, personal disclosure, wisdom, and deep irony. The first page of Beautiful Country. How it began. My story starts decades before my birth. In my father's earliest memory, he is four years old, shooting a toy gun at nearby birds as he skips to the town square. There he halts, arrested by curious swaying shapes that he is slow to recognize, two men dangling from a muscular tree. He approaches slowly, pushing past the knees of adults encircling the tree. In the muggy late summer air, mosquitoes and flies swarm the hanging corpses. The stench of decomposing flesh floods his nose. He sees on the dirt ground a single character written in blood. Wrongly accused. It is 1966, and China's cultural revolution has just begun. Even for a country marked by storied upheaval, the next decade would bring unparalleled turmoil. To this date, the actual death toll from the purges remains unspoken, and worse, unknown. Three years later, my seven-year-old father watched as his eldest brother was placed under arrest. Weeks prior, my teenage uncle had criticized Mao Zedong in writing for manipulating the innocent people of China by pitting them against one another, just to centralize his power. My uncle had naively heroically, stupidly distributed the essay to the public. So there would be no high school graduation for him, only starvation and torture behind prison walls. From then on, my father would spend his childhood bearing witness to his parents' public beatings, all while enduring his own humiliation at school, where he was forced to stand in the front of the classroom every morning as his teachers and classmates berated him and his treasonous family. Outside of school, adults and children alike pelted him with rocks, pebbles, shit. Gone was the honor of his grandfather, whose deft brokering had managed to shield their village from the rape and pillage of the Japanese occupation. Gone were the visitors to the Wang family courtyard who sought his father's calligraphy. From then on, it would just be his mother's bruised face, his father's silent, stoic tears his four sisters' screams as the Red Guards ransacked their already shredded home. It is against this backdrop that my parents' beginnings unfurled. My mother's pain was that of a daughter born to a family entangled in the government. 
none of her father's power was enough to insulate her from the unrest and sexism of her time. She grew up a hundred miles away from my father, and their hardships were at once the same and worlds apart. Half a century and a migration across the world later, it would take therapy's slow and arduous unraveling for me to see that the thread of trauma was woven into every fiber of my family, my childhood. Today's third book is Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's by Tiffany Midge. An astute observer of culture and history, the author is a genius of satire and parody. These essays are filled with irony, laser insight, and laugh-out-loud humor. Read this book by Midge, who is a citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, and after reading it, read her award-winning poetry book, The Woman Who Married a Bear. Hers is an important and necessary contemporary voice. The first page of Bury My Heart at Chuck E. Cheese's. The day of my mother's funeral service, I separated myself from the rest of the grieving throng and hid out in the musician's belfry like tortured Quasimodo, my grief too hideous to expose. I peered down upon the mourners below, watched my aunts struggling with folding a star quilt, trying to contain it within the casket. The lid wouldn't close. The white pastor believed my mother's quilt was some sort of ancient Lakota ritual. He announced it with gravity and a sense of suspicious distance. Native flute music floated out from the speakers as my aunties struggled to close the lid, both furtively cramming the ends of the quilt into the casket, tucking my mother inside. One of them gestured exasperatingly to the other, and then they both started to laugh. Months before her death, my mother made me promise that we'd bury her in her royal blue pantsuit, her favorite color. She forced her jewelry on me. Take this and this. Here, take this. It is both touching and morbid to accept a dying woman's most personal belongings. Her favorite silver and turquoise earrings, the onyx bracelet, the Black Hills gold rings. She even gave me her little silver buffalo pendant. I wore it to a grade school presentation, and one of the children raised her hand and asked, Is that a pig? Thank you for spending time with me today. If you liked listening to this episode, please subscribe.